Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Hill City, you may be seated. Uh, My name is Trey. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. What would begin to change in your life? If you begin to have confidence in the power of God, what what would begin to change in this church as we as a whole would begin to grow in our confidence and understanding of the power of God? What would change your family's life, parents, if you begin to believe and have confidence in the power of God? If there is any passage in Scripture in the New Testament that should bolster our confidence in what God can do among any one of us, it's this passage. I thought I had, sorry, I thought I had a congregation out here. (laughs) If there's any passage that should ignite us into a calling of what God could do in us, it's the story of this guy named Saul. We've been introduced to him. The last time we heard of him, he was killing Christians, Stephen to be exact. And now there's a story where God breaks through in amazing power. What would happen in our our lives in this church if we began to have confidence in the power of God who changed Saul's life? We, uh, if you're if you're a Chiefs fan, we're still we're still enjoying the the past month or two of enjoying this Super Bowl win. And and as I watch the games, and now as I look back, and they have all those mic'd up clips, you know, of the players and the playoffs and the Super Bowl. As a Chiefs fan, it was awful because they were behind by like 10 points in every game, right? One game, 20-some points, and I'm thinking this is over, and, I, and all of you were too. Don't tell me you had faith. You thought it was done, right? But what's interesting is now it's all done. You go back and look at the clips on the sidelines. The Chief players, they were never worried, were they? Why? Because they got Patrick Mahomes as a quarterback. <laughs> it's like, let him score. This is going to be a good story. You're going to watch this. That was, their, that was their understanding. Hill City Church, what would happen in your lives if you had an understanding like that of the power of God and what he can do through anyone? That is my goal out of this story, is that God in his mercy and his grace would wake us up into what he could do among us and what he is doing among us. The last time we've, we've been in the Acts, we've been seeing this movement grow from a, from a small group of Jewish believers, really the small little sect of Jewish believers, to now growing into a um, multi-ethnic movement of 
the spirit of Jesus. God will use persecution to expand his church. That's what happens. See, these Jewish believers are meeting in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden persecution breaks out. They start getting arrested, tortured, killed. And because of that, all the believers, they flee and they go to other places because Jerusalem is just a hot spot of, of persecution. But when they go, what do they do? They go and hide. They go to other places and they begin to speak of the power of Jesus. And what happens through persecution, God begins to spread this movement among the region. God will use and can use anything for his glory. The news media, and we could give this whole, like, there's this whole thing going on called the coronavirus, if you haven't heard. And the media wants us to live in fear. Now, I, have a, I, I can get on a soapbox of why I won't. They want us to be afraid and think that God's out of control and all this. I got to listen last weekend to a group of church planners talk. So that the, the city in China where the coronavirus broke out is the city where these believers, American believers, went to start a church a few years ago. Raised up, uh, led the, shared the gospel, led a Chinese believer to Christ. They've been discipling him to take over the church. And there's this fear, well, is he ready? Is, does our team need to move on yet? Boom, coronavirus hits. The team of Americans has to evacuate. They go to another place, start sharing the gospel where they go, and God is already working there. God can use whatever he wants to move in his church. And he does it here through persecution led by a man named Saul. And we're going to jump into his story. This is the man, this is the beginning for most of you, almost all of you, of your faith. Unless you're a Jew, right? very few of you are, you're a non-Jew, you're a Gentile. This is the man that will take the gospel to your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. And it starts right here. And I hope you see in this that God can, can and will do whatever he wants in the lives of whoever he wants to do. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, okay, the way that think Christians, that, that was what they called themselves then, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, so we're introduced to this Saul character again. The last time we see him, he's overseeing an execution. Saul goes to the, the, the synagogue, the, leader, the Jewish leaders, and says, hey, if you'll allow me to, I will go as a bounty hunter. I'm going to Damascus. If I find anyone there of this sect called the way, I'm going to bring them bound. We're going to torture them and kill them. And that's what he's doing. He is on the way to Damascus. We know from Scripture, Saul is an educated man. He's educated um, by a famous rabbi. He grows up. He's born in Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. Because of his intellect and his gifting, he got moved in a young age to Jerusalem, where he grows up at the feet of one of the most famous rabbis of that day in Jerusalem. If you were here last year when I did that talk on discipleship and the schools and the best of the best, Saul was one of those. He's different than the rest of the disciples. Peter, James, John, they're fishing because they're not very smart. Okay? He's the best of the best. He's educated underneath a famous rabbi. He is a faithful Israelite man. He's a Pharisee. If you guys have read Jesus' interactions with Pharisees, Saul is of that group. By the way, if you're new to the faith, his name is Saul, but he'll also call himself Paul. So I may use those interchangeably, Saul, Paul. Saul is his Jewish name. 
okay, from the heritage of King Saul. Paul is a name he used when he was dealing with, with non-Jews, Gentiles. Okay, Saul, Paul, same person here. This guy, is we've got to know about him, he is zealous for God. He believes in the God of the Old Testament. He so much believes in the God of the Old Testament. He's so passionate about it that he believes this sect called the Way, who follow this guy named Jesus, are going to ruin their faith. And he feels called of God to stamp it out. He is serious about his faith. Uh, later in, in Philippians, he'll, he'll write this. He says, if anyone has reason for confidence, I, I have more. I was... And he lists all of his Jewish accomplishments. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the best of the best, as to a law, a Pharisee, as to zeal. I went after the church because they were, I thought they were leading people away from, from, from God. As to righteousness, uh, righteousness under the law, blameless. He was sold out for his faith. So much so that it led him to murder for his faith. His faith was based on him and his good works. It says that he's breathing threats among the believers. By the way, Saul's age uh, and his conversion is estimated between 28 to 30, 31. So, young man. And he is the arch enemy of Christianity. He's on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you're used to just a good book, like here's the typical setup. We have the good guys, the Christians, the people of the way, and now we're introduced to the evil Saul, right? The, the, the Luke Skywalker Christians and the Darth Vader evil Saul. And, and, and we would think that this is going to be the backdrop of the rest of this story of the Bible, right? But God. The two best words in Scripture. If it's so, God, Saul's ruined. <laughs> He's done. But God. Let's go. Verse 3. Now Saul went on his way. He approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Saul's on his way. He's going to kill Christians. He's going to Damascus to find men or women of the way, take them, torture them, execute them. On the way, he's walking down the road. This bright light shines. It blinds him. He hears this voice. And the voice says, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't looking for this when he woke up and ate his breakfast that morning. He's on his way to go do this. Now, this is a side note. This is, this is for free, okay? Watch what Jesus says to him. This, there's a subtlety here that's so important. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? Do you see how closely Jesus is tied to his people? Jesus loves his church. So intimately that referring to his church, he referred to it as himself. There is no distinction in Jesus' mind between himself and the church. He calls the church me. Now, here's your free little rabbit trail. 
You can't say you love Jesus and marginally love his church. He doesn't separate them. You can't say you love Jesus but be marginally involved in a church. Jesus and his church are interwoven. And it's so easy, like we have a social media day where people make comments, you can see all that. It is so easy to sit back and throw stones at the church and churches. Like, and hear me, if you're looking for a church and you're looking for just like the perfect church, don't come back next Sunday because this ain't your perfect church. If you're looking for uh, pastors that never make mistakes and never lead, don't come here because Brad has a long way to go, okay? <laughs> I, there, there is not. And here, like, Hill City Church, as any church, is full of broken people who are being made new in the gospel. Broken pastors who are being made new in the gospel. How easy is it to sit back and throw stones at the church? But I would caution you because in doing so, you're throwing stones at Jesus. That Jesus and the church are interwoven. It is easy to sit back and throw stones. But here, it's another thing to get involved in a church and name your own brokenness and not throw stones at everyone else's. And it's even another thing to get involved in a church and name your own brokenness and step into ministry and try to help advance the church into better being who Jesus wants us to be. Be cautious how we throw stones at church. Like I said, that was for free, okay? Back to verse five. So Jesus shows, he, he begins to speak to him, why are you persecuting me? And look what happens in verse five. Saul falls to the ground. He's in shock. And here's his response to Jesus. Who are you, Lord? There is so much in this sentence. We're, we're gonna focus for a second on this idea of salvation. Because here's the reality that we see about Jesus in this passage. Jesus is ready to forgive. And who is he ready to forgive? His enemies. And such were some of you. Ah, scratch that. And such were all of you. Jesus is ready to break through and forgive his enemies. Here's what was not happening as Paul, Saul, was walking to Damascus. Now, Jesus, if you're there, would you please reveal yourself to me? Saul was going to kill Christians. Jesus broke in. Salvation comes and is initiated from the calling of God. And he can do and break into anyone's life that he sees fit. But Jesus is not up there, oh, would you please believe it? He can do whatever he wants to do. The salvation we see in, of Saul is Jesus breaking in, as Brad said it a few weeks ago, an indisputable demonstration of the authority and power of God. Saul was not looking for Jesus. Jesus went and found him. And you were not looking for Jesus. And if you did do some searching, it's because he already initiated to you. Here's what Jesus says in John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. God is the initiator of salvation. The Bible, all throughout the Bible, salvation is mine, declares the Lord. Your salvation came from the calling of God. And your salvation is free and unmerited. What did Paul do to earn his salvation here? Nothing. 
One of the biggest lies of American Christianity is if I come to church and get my life cleaned up, then I can follow God. No, God's going to come to you while you're his enemy, while you're living against him. He's going to pull you out and say, no, by the way, you're going to follow me now. And he's going to work and change you. Your salvation was free and unmerited. All Paul said is, who are you, Lord? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's not of your own doing. None of us have a place to sit here this morning and say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. He found you. You're found. That's it. So Paul's salvation shows us that salvation is initiated from God. It's free and unmerited. Paul did nothing to earn it. And here's the cool thing. The moment Saul is going to be saved here, what's going to happen is he's going to be counted righteous. He's got a laundry list of dirt. And in the middle of that, he's going to be declared righteous. Christian, let me hear, hear me on this. When you believed in Jesus, when you were saved, you were counted righteous. In that moment, Romans 8.30, those, Christian, this is you, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That word justified, it's justification. Here's what it means. It's a legal act of God declaring our sins forgiven. If you are a believer in Christ, you are justified before God. It's a legal metaphor. Here it is, courtroom. You're the defendant. God is the judge. And to be justified is God to take the gavel and say, not guilty. That's what happened when you believed in Jesus. Your past sins, your current sins, your future sins are counted as nothing because of the blood of Jesus. You are now called righteous. That is your identity. Quit, Christians, quit begging God to forgive you. He already did. Amen. Oh, God, I'm, you messed up last night. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Will you, will you please forgive me? He already did. How about this? God, I messed up last night. I receive your forgiveness by faith because of the blood of Jesus. Now let me keep walking in righteousness. Quit begging for God's forgiveness. You're already forgiven in Christ. When you were saved, he justified you. He counted you righteous. It's his work. So what's our part? What do we do? If God initiates with Saul, God breaks in, God counts, what do we do? Faith and repentance. That's what we teach. That's our response. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's how you respond to Jesus, okay? So you're here this morning, and, and you're like, this is new for you. Here's what I'm going to tell you. You're not here because you wanted to come to church. You're here because Jesus is drawing you. And he died for you because he loved you. And the invitation is for now to come follow me. How do I do that? Faith and repentance. Faith, I believe in you, Jesus, and I rest in your work on the cross. I'm going to quit trying to earn my way to you. That's faith. Repentance is now, Jesus, i got a bunch of stuff in my life that doesn't reflect you. Will you help me to let go of that? And hear me, that is a process. That's not an overnight thing. Faith and repentance is the call of God. 
So we see in Saul's life, the gospel proclaimed, if you're, if you're new to this faith, the gospel means good news. Here, here is the good news. You ready? The good news is that Jesus came, lived a life you could not live. He died the death that you deserve. He was raised in a power that you do not possess, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and intercedes on your behalf. That's the gospel. And that is our hope, not our goodness. God doesn't make decent people better. He makes lost people found. And that's what he does to Saul. He pulls him out of his rebellion, of his murdering Christians, and he changes everything. Now, one of the doctrines that I, for years, I, I left out, and I'm repenting publicly. I've done it before. We talked about the cross a lot. We talk about the resurrection a lot. One of the doctrines that's forgotten in so many Christian circles is the ascension, that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he came to the disciples, he visited them, he taught them, and then he ascended, the Bible says, to the right hand of the Father, which means Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father as a good high priest interceding on your behalf. You missed that one, didn't you? So here's what didn't happen. Jesus didn't raise from the dead and say, okay, now that I did my work, I'm going to go into retirement, I'm going to go to the ocean, uh, uh, island off the coast of Greece. I'm going to have a, a margarita and sit back and rest. No, he ascended to the right hand of the Father as a good high priest, and he intercedes for you now. Every single moment of every day, Jesus is pleading your case. It is by my blood that they are saved. It is by my blood that they are saved. It is by my blood. When you messed up last night, it is by my blood they are saved. Here's what Hebrews 7 teaches us, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Here we go. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to intercede on your behalf. At the right hand of the Father. What would happen if we begin to have more confidence in the power of God that breaks in and saves Saul out of his murderous rampage? Is our gospel is often too small. I'm guilty of thinking this, seeing, looking to my right or my left, whether it's in church, whether it's somewhere else. Well, I, I, I just don't think God could save him. He's too far gone. I, I don't think God could save her. Like anyone else? What do we ultimately say in there? God can't do it. And we're also elevating us. Well, God can't save him, but my God, he can save me because I'm, you hear it? May we repent of our, under, of our belief or our doubts that God can't save, like God can break in and do whatever he pleases. And your salvation, Christian, should bring a sense of awe and wonder at the majesty of God. Here's what he's like, why me? Why me? But for the grace of God. Verse 6, so Saul is blinded, he's, he's speechless, he doesn't know what to say, he falls down, and then Jesus tells him this, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you're to do. <laughs> I love that, Jesus like, I'll tell you what to do, you just go to the city. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. But Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he led him, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. 
So this happens. Jesus breaks in, makes him blind. He, he's in shock. They lead him into the city. Now, while this is happening with Saul, the same time God is working in the, in the life of someone else. Now, next week what we're going to do is we're going to look at this guy. We're going to look at the same passage through his lens next week. But his name's Ananias. Uh, let's go verse 10. There's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here am I. And the Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight in the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. I love that. Jesus is like, I just scared him to death. He's praying, I promise you. <laughs> and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, we're introduced to this character, Ananias. All we know about him is he's a disciple at Damascus. Now, rewind. Where was Saul going to kill Christians? This guy was Saul's target, one of them. Ananias, Saul is Ananias' greatest enemy. Like Saul is a dangerous dude. So much that Ananias, we're going to skip it. We'll look at it next week. He's like, God, you've heard of him, right? I'm supposed to go to Saul? Later in verse 26 of chapter 9, Saul eventually goes to Jerusalem where some of the early disciples are, and he attempts to join them. They won't let him in because they're afraid of him. Read it, verse 26 of chapter 9. That's how dangerous Saul is. So Ananias, verse 17, departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, this is so cool, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who had appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales from, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. This is so cool, not just how God saves someone, but how God brings people together in the midst of that. Before this happens, Saul is his greatest enemy. Now Ananias will refer to Saul as brother. Christian, let me tell you something. Your most determined enemy is a potential brother and sister in Christ. Who came to your mind? Your most determined enemy is a potential brother or sister in Christ. How might that change how you interact with them? How might that change how you pray for them? Instead of, God, will you please keep so will you keep so-and-so away? Will you protect them from so-and-so? How about this? God, will you change their heart? And we also change mine in the process. Brother Saul. And he lays hands on him. Luke tells us that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saved. This is the moment where Saul's heart comes to know Jesus and follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells him. Here's the reality. So, when God forgives, which he did Saul, he calls him out, he forgives him. When God forgives, he also restores. Okay, so we don't teach a gospel here that says you need to say a prayer and be forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die. We are missing a bunch of the story there. And that is a very small gospel. No, God's going to save you, pull you out. He's going to begin to restore you and transform you for a mission that you have, which you're going to do till you fall across the finish line and die, and then you go to the heaven and celebrate forever. That's a better gospel. 
So he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and this Holy Spirit begins to work in Saul. And here's what the Holy Spirit does, believers. He, he changes and shapes and molds our love, what we love, what we value. See, Saul loved his idea of God. Jesus, God's going to reveal in him more of who he is, and he's going to shape those loves, the work of the Holy Spirit. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is in your life is to shape your loves. What you des- your desires and your passions aren't necessarily bad. It's just the direction of them. So what God does is he takes those passions and, I, and he reshapes them into something more meaningful. So let me say it like this. The work of the Holy Spirit is to take someone that's, that just desires power to be used for however they want to use to save them and begin to restore them and them to see that ultimately their power is not what they need. They need God's power and that would be a lot better. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Work of the Holy Spirit is someone who loves money and wants to make a bunch of money and, and works to, to get as much money as they can to capture God, captures their heart. The Holy Spirit begins to work, and they begin to say, how do I not just make it all about me and then pass it to my kids who are going to blow it all anyway? How do I begin to leverage that money for kingdom things? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I thought I might get an amen, and, you know? And keeping tight, tight hold on your wallets back there. The work of the Holy Spirit is to take someone who loves control. And their God is control. I gotta be in control. I gotta, and to be able to teach them that actually God's in control and that's better for all of us. See, the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus saves, forgives. The work of the Holy Spirit is to restore us and begin to mold us into who he wants us to be. So Saul, he's prayed for, he receives the Holy Spirit, and then look what happens next. He's baptized. By the way, we got 20 baptisms next week? 20? Yeah. Um, So baptism is this celebration, this public statement of that I have been found by Jesus. Now, uh, so we believe here at Hill City Church, when you come to faith in Christ, and that's many of you, you're new to this church, you've been coming. When you come to faith in Christ, the next step is to be baptized. It's a public statement of your faith. That's all baptism is. Now, I want to talk to a group of you. It's probably the second half of you. I want you to see something interesting. I realized this morning, Saul's been a follower of Yahweh, God, his entire life. Been in synagogues, been in uh, schools of rap. Like he's been in, quote, the church. But then as an adult, he comes to finally understand the real gospel and who Jesus is. And what does he do? He gets baptized. I would challenge some of you who maybe grew up in church or, or you you thought you understood the gospel when you were six and so you got baptized as a kid but you didn't have a clue and then as you become an adult, you like it's real now. You believe the gospel. I would urge you to consider, just like Saul, getting baptized and making that public for the sake of the church, for your family, for your children. It's a cool thing that happens to Saul. Now, I'm at 30 minutes and I'm tempted right here to say, okay, amen. We'll see Saul in heaven. Glory, hallelujah, right? But we're missing something on the gospel. Because Jesus forgives. And the Holy Spirit restores us. And then he sends us. Verse 6. Rise, Saul, 
and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, a few verses down, we'll look at it next week. He's going to be told, you're going to be now my witness, and you're going to take the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jews. When Jesus calls, he also sends. May we grow in our spiritual integrity that we can't narrow the Christian life to I believe in Jesus and I have a seat twice a month on a Sunday morning and then I live my lame middle class life. That when Jesus calls, the invitation is come and die. Lay down your life for me, for my service with the promise of it's better. There's a a guy, one of, our, one of our older members came and he pours in all kinds of colors. right before this hour and I pull him aside man, thank you so much for what you do here. And he goes, oh my gosh, I love it. How many of us in this room have understood forgiven and maybe we're being made new or in a Bible study we're learning about our faith but we've yet to step into the reality that we're sent by Jesus. Hear me, you have a calling if you are in Christ, if you're a believer, you have a calling from Jesus. And your calling is meant to proclaim the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. You have a calling. You are sent. And so what the cool thing that Jesus does here, that God does with, with Saul, is he took his brokenness, but also his natural giftings in that brokenness, like Saul was a disciplined, bold, self-starter. Give me a list of Christians, I'm going to go kill them. That takes some guts, right? So God took that. He took his, he's an intellectual too. And he calls him, he shapes him. And now, guess what God's going to use for Saul to advance the gospel? His boldness, his self-starter, his discipline, and his intellectual ability. God takes the brokenness transforms it into beauty and goodness, and that becomes his calling. We see it with Peter also. How many times when we went through Luke last year did we see Peter open his mouth and make a fool of himself? But guess what happens when Jesus restores him and, uh, and Jesus rises and he, and he sends the disciples out to, to start his church? Guess who's the first one to preach? Peter. Peter. God took a guy that liked to talk first and he reworked it to where when someone needed to preach the gospel, Peter stood up and said, I'll talk. Boom. When God saves you, he restores you, and he sends you, and often he will use in you, hear me with this, the very qualities that you despise may be the very things that God will use for his glory. Look back at your story. The very moments that you hate yourself and you're ashamed, and why did I do that, and why did I live like that, those moments may be the very giftings in you that God's going to rework and use for his glory and your calling. It's actually your wounds and your scars that God will begin to work out of. You think Paul can't still hear the screams of the Christians he tortured? He's going to live his life for many years here proclaiming the gospel. You don't think that he can't still hear the crack of the rock against Stephen's skull? I guarantee you. 
But the beauty of Jesus, he's going to use that and transform it into something good. When you were saved, when Jesus called you and forgave you, the work of the Holy Spirit is to restore you and grow you so that you can step in to your calling. That you can participate in the mission. So hear me. I love you. Hear me on this. Hear my heart. If there is no sense of calling, there may be no salvation. Now, I don't mean you got to have everything figured out and be preaching the gospel out the corner. That, but if there's no wrestling with, thinking about, asking other people, what gifting do you see in me? How, how can this be used? Yeah, I used it for this in my old days, but how can, if there's no wrestling with that, maybe there's no salvation because when Jesus saves, he sins. I'm not saying you have to have it figured out, but what would happen in a church like this if we see more men and women, young and old, wrestling with how has God uniquely equipped me and called me to make known his gospel? That doesn't mean you have to be Saul and a preacher and get up like, we don't, everyone doesn't have to be this extroverted and like bold, extroverted, bold self-starter. You have a calling. You have a gifting. What could God do if you began to step into it? What could he do through you? What could he do in this church? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go to Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much more he must suffer for the sake of my name. I love it. Go, Ananias, because Saul is a chosen instrument of mind. The work of Jesus is forgive, restore, and send. What if we believed that out here are people that are chosen instruments of God for his purpose? What would it, you believe that for yourself? Well, Hood, you don't know what I did. Saul murdered Christians. And if that's your story, we have a help group actually here for people that used to murder Christians and now they're trying to follow Jesus. We'll get you in that. It's called I Used to Murder Christians, Now I Don't. That's the name of the help group. <laughs> what if you could begin to believe that God can take an ordinary person like yourself, forgive them, restore them, and now send them, and you begin to step out of that. Adults, what would happen if we stepped out of our lame, middle-class existing and more into a calling? We're going to talk more on that next week. What if we begin to believe that the next great leader of the faith, Hill City's next church planter, is an unbeliever right now? What if we begin to believe that? And pray for that and share the gospel like that. What if we begin to believe, Lord, have mercy, one of these young people here are the next pastor of Hill City Church? How might that change how we shepherd, pray, encourage, send, challenge, set apart? What could God do if we had a bigger understanding of his power that he can call whoever he wants to and restore them in every way and he will send them in a way that you can't even imagine. 
Would God wake us up to that? And here's what some of you are saying. Well, Hood, I don't know enough. I, I can't go talk. Whose power do you believe in? Well, I'm not very well spoken. Whose power do you believe in? So I close here. Um, why would God save Paul, Saul? Why him? It's really cool. I think Saul wrestles with that question. I think he wrestles it through his entire life. Again, I think he hears the screams. I think he remembers the threats, the murder. And his question, he wrestled with, God, why me? Which should be every one of our postures. Why, why me? Well, in 1 Timothy, he's writing, and he actually tells us why he thinks Jesus saved him. This is so cool. Verse 15, this is 1 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I'm the foremost. You better believe that's your story too. Whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the worst sinners, here we go, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who will believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Here's what Saul sees. His salvation is bigger than him. It's that everyone might look and say, if God can save Saul, he can save anyone. And how might that begin to change how you pray, how you share, how you serve, how you equip, how you go? What if we began to have more confidence in the power of God who can save the most unlikely person. As a freshman in college at Missouri State University, got involved in campus ministry, I played guitar and would lead worship some. Actually, I wouldn't sing, which is probably a good thing. I'd play guitar in the back. I remember someone said, hey, Daniel, here's a mic. We want you to say something. I said, no, I'm not talking in that thing. But God. Now, some of you are like, well, you should have listened to him a long time ago, didn't it? The most unlikely people is who Jesus loves to pull out. If you guys uh, know novels and liturgy, anyone heard of a guy named C.S. Lewis? Wrote a book you might have read, uh, or maybe a few of them you might have read. He was an atheist. You know that? Spent years as an atheist, um, arguing against Christianity. And he says that over just a period of weeks, Jesus just revealed himself to him. And hear me, C.S. Lewis hated it. He's like, I don't want to believe in you. But Jesus transformed him and then sent him to go write. And here's the cool thing. God didn't use C.S. Lewis in spite of his atheism days. He used him because of his atheism days. Who was the best equipped person to go write to atheists? C.S. Lewis, because that, right? Your calling comes from your story. One of my heroes that's going to reach the back half of the room, Johnny Cash, the man in black. I don't know if you know his story, spent years chasing fame, success. The Lord Jesus called him, said, no, Johnny, you're going to follow me. He spent his latter days testifying about the Lord, actually worked with Billy Graham doing Billy Graham crusades. God can call whoever he wants to do. Now, the first half, this is for you, that God can take a guy named Kanye who said, I am God, and now profess, no, Jesus is king. That's what God can do. What could God do in you? Now, Christians, by the way, may we quit criticizing people and doubting and start praying for brothers. 
and believe the best and believe that God can do whatever he wants. From I am God to Jesus is king, Jesus can do whatever he wants in anyone's life. What if you begin to believe that? I wonder what Paul would have said, that, that God took him from I am good, I am enough, to Jesus is better. What's your story? Look back. What was your identity? I am to Jesus is. I asked some of our staff this, this week in a text. I said, tell me. Here's what someone on our staff said. One person said, God took me from I am in control to Jesus is sovereign. Another one of our staff said, Jesus, God took me from I am a consumer of comfort and pleasure to Jesus is better. This is cool. One of our other guys said, he took me from I am power and rage to Jesus is my true strong tower. What could God do in you, in your neighbor, in your friend, in your child, in your parent, in your family member if we began to believe that he has power over all we begin to pray and share the gospel and act like that. Let's pray together.